0: Let's pray before we begin our message. Father, we do come and ask that you would still our minds and our hearts, that you would uh, fill us with your word, that we would hear you, and that you would guide us to live our lives in ways that please and honor you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. A number of years ago, a uh, friend of mine... Told me this story, and I'm calling his story the case of the strange boy. That all began a long time ago uh, on a warm summer day like today, and my friend he gathered his three boys, age 12, 10, and 7, and they headed off to a local fair. And the boys were obviously excited about the food and the games and the rides. But it was mostly about the rides that they were excited. And this is when the trouble started. At the fair, each of the boys disagreed on what rides to go on. What the youngest boy wanted was rejected by the oldest. What the ride that the oldest wanted to do was not suitable for the youngest, but he wanted to go anyway. And not to be left out, the middle child, his suggestions were all whined about by his brother's. We don't want to do that ride. Three boys all pulling in different directions. And the excitement of a day at the fair was in danger of becoming a fight at the fair. So being a wise dad, he he announced to his sons this was going to be our plan. The father would choose the rides. It was going to be his choice, because he knew what his children would like and what was suitable for them. And so he explained to his sons that he was going to bring them to various rides, and then he would give them a ticket. Here is your ticket for the ride. When we get to the ride, I will give you the ticket, not before. Otherwise, they could wait until the ride was finished. After some grumbling, the boys uh, quickly accepted, and so began their journey through the fair, going from ride to ride. Now as my friend stood at the entrance of another ride, giving his tickets to his, his boys, and off they went, this strange little boy showed up. And my friend said at first he didn't even know he was there until he heard the small voice saying, "Hey, Mister, can I have a ticket?" He said, when he' looked down, he saw this strange little boy with his hand out waiting for a ticket. And my friend said that uh, he smiled, and and he kind of thought to himself, uh, there's some confusion. Uh, He figured the boy had seen him giving out free tickets. And he thought, hey, I'm going to get in this. This is great. I want a free ticket as well. And so he gently leaned down to the boy, and he said, you know, these tickets are for my my boys. Uh, You should go ask your, your parents. But he said, this didn't seem to register with the boy. He just kept asking he kept his hand up. Please give me a ticket. He simply wouldn't go away. And as you can imagine, my friend was starting to become a little bit annoyed. And he thought, well, what is this kid's parents? He's becoming a real pest to me and he's following me everywhere, asking for a ticket. Now at that moment, the ride that his boys were on finished. And they all came running out excited. Only to see their dad trying to, you know, chew away this little boy, you know, who was defiantly still asking. My friend said to me, it was at this moment that everything became clear. He had the, aha, now I understand moment. As his boys came over to see what was going on, his oldest son said to his dad, hey dad, I told this boy and his parents that if he asked you, you'd give him a ticket. Oh, now I get it. Now I understand what's going on. That's why this boy is pestering me. So what did my friend do? What would you do? Well, because the ride was inappropriate and because his son said his parents had already agreed, he gave the boy a ticket. And off he went to the ride. Later that evening, when he came home, he was talking to his wife and he was telling her about this funny story about this boy at the fair. And the both realized some things. They realized that this boy was really determined because he fully expected to receive a ticket. And he kept on asking despite being told no over and over again. They also realized that the only reason this little boy received a ticket was because his son had asked him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given any tickets away. And lastly, both parents kind of smiled and looked at each other and they said, you know, we have a really thoughtful and wonderful son. That He'd go out of his way to think about somebody else, doesn't even know, and arrange for this little boy to have a ticket for the ride. Now, I'm not telling you this story because a little boy was successful in getting a ticket for a fairground ride. There's something else going on here in this story. Did you notice how similar this is to the passage in Matthew 7. My friend told me later that he, he thought upon further reflection that this is how God treats us. This is how he treats his children. When they ask, he gives. He... Now, our passage in Matthew 7, 7 to 12, is about you and me being our father's child. Jesus explains that God, our father, expects us He expects us to behave and to live as his children because he loves us. In our text, Jesus tells us that the father has at least two expectations of you as his child. The first expectation is that you ask, seek, and knock, and expect to receive. In the story I just told you, whose request did my friend answer? Was it the request of the strange boy? Or was it it the request of his son? As we see in these verses, 7 to 11, they refer to the request of his son. There is no doubt in the mind of my friend's uh, oldest boy that his dad would come through. Of course he'll give you a ticket if I ask. I expect that he will do that. And in turn, the little boy received something that he wanted because he believed that the son was telling him the truth. The second expectation the father has for us in these verses is that his children imitate him; that we be like him; that we copy, we imitate how God treats people. Again, in our opening story, it was the eldest son who was living out Matthew 7:12. So, whatever you wish that others do to you, do also to them. It was my friend's son who took note of the boy assess the need, and then ask his father on the boy's behalf. As adopted sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, forgiven and made new only through faith in Christ, our father is neither surprised nor is he indifferent when we come before him and make requests. He expects us, as his children, to behave as his children, as a child would before their own dad. But Timothy Keller put it this way. He said, wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be marvelous if God always gave you what you asked for? If you knew everything he knows. Well, we have a God like that. God gives us what we need. And we would ask for him, but we don't know everything he knows. Hence, prayer and trust in him. This is part of what Jesus wants us to know and experience about our Heavenly Father. Jesus wants us to be confident and assured as we seek our Father in prayer and in life. Our Father will give us good things. So as children were told to do the first thing, asking your Heavenly Father in verses 7 and 11. As you come to this text this morning, This connects us back to last week, last Sunday's message, where Jesus commanded his disciples to be discerning and not to judge on their own or by their own standards. Here, Jesus moves everything back to prayer. Now, verses 7 to 11 actually connect us back to the Lord's prayer in Matthew 9. There's a connection here, and I'll show you what that is. This is why Jesus begins to talk about prayer at this point, especially after his long discourse in Matthew 6. What he's saying here is that we need God's power to do right in all areas, to work for spiritual treasure, to trust God rather than to worry, and to stop looking down on those we think are inferior to us. So when we we compare the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 9 with what he teaches in Matthew 7, to 12, we see some connections. Matthew 7 to 11 actually amplifies and further explains Matthew 6 and 13. If you recall, Matthew 6:11 says, Give us our daily bread. And Matthew 6, 13 says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These are requests. And in verse 12 of both chapters they also connect. Matthew 6, 12 says, and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. The golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. I'd also argue that Matthew 7, 1 to 6 about not judging people but having discernment also connects with Matthew 7, 12. As we, need to, as we see our need for forgiveness, we become aware of our need to forgive others rather than condemning them in judgment as I move through these verses, 7 to 8 in particular, first, I want us to notice a couple of things. How many times in these two verses does Jesus use the word ask? How many times does he use the word seek and knock? He repeats this twice, but in slightly different ways. The first, ask, seek, knock, are commands. You're commanded to ask. You're commanded to seek. You're commanded to knock. In verse 8, It's a slight change. It's asks, present, seeks, knocks. It's an ongoing thing. It's not a one-time ask or seek or knock. And in each of these two examples, the response is slightly different as well. Ask, and it will be given in the future. In verse 8, ask, receive, present. Both these dynamics are going on at the same time. Jesus repeats himself, by emphasizing both the present command and the present continual action of asking, seeking, and knocking. And this is a general principle in life. You get what you ask for. You find what you're looking for. And doors are only opened if you make the effort to knock or ring the doorbell and receive admittance. The second thing to notice is that these three words, ask, seek, and knock, are not quite the same. There's an increasing intensity. The first level, asking, is a simple request. I ask for something. It's not necessarily serious enough to require anything more than a simple request. To ask implies a conscious need, and the word also suggests humility. As in asking a superior for something. A deeper level, a level a little deeper than that, is seeking. That's asking plus action. At this stage, your request or need becomes sufficiently serious that you become involved in the answer, in discovering the answer. Seek involves asking but also adds that action. The, the idea is not merely to express one's needs, but to get up and look around for help. It involves effort. A number of years ago, I was visiting a friend of mine, and they had a five-year-old boy. And they had a tradition in the car. I don't know how it started, but it continued for a number of years. Wherever they went, to a mall or shopping or anywhere, as they approached a destination, the dad would say to the son, okay, time to pray for a parking spot. And the five-year-old would sit there and say, God, please help my dad find a parking spot. And invariably, they found a parking spot. I was there. There was no parking anywhere until the little boy prayed. And then, oh, this guy's pulling out. This is great. Here's a spot right here. But even though his son was asking, they were still looking for a parking spot. They were actively seeking God's answer. Where is he going to give us a parking spot? That may seem kind of mundane, but it's not because they probably would have found a spot anyway. Maybe not as fast or as convenient, but because the child asked, the family knew and could praise God for the provision. God gets the glory for every answer he provides. At the deepest level is knocking. Asking plus action plus persistence. It includes persevering There's an urgency. I need this. And I'm going to try my best to see my answers reached. And Jesus provides many illustrations in the Gospels about persistent prayer. In Luke 11, we have the man who had guests come late at night. He had no food for the guests. So he went next door to his neighbor and knocked on the door. Hey, I need some food. And the neighbor said, hey, we're asleep. Go away. But he kept knocking. And what did this friend say? You know, I'm going to give him something. Not because he's my friend, because he's keeping us awake and is a pest. So I'll give him that. In the same way in Luke 18, the, the widow who wanted justice from an unjust judge who didn't care about God or man, she kept daily persisting until he finally said, you know, just to get her to stop, I'm going to give her what she wants. Both of those stories indicate Persistent prayer. In both parables, Jesus tells us, those who persist, find and receive. So the arrangements of these words become forceful. Ask, seek, and knock. Because they represent a level of intensity and urgency in your requests. The other aspects that will become obvious is that the Father invites everyone. Not a special person, but every child has access to ask the father. Children have open access to approach their father with their questions, desires, and needs. Fathers and mothers invite their children to seek them out for everyone who asks. Notice, however, that everyone only refers to a child of the parents and not to strangers. If you recall the case of the strange boy, he didn't get his answer because he asked. He got his answer because the son had asked before. And the father was responding to that question and giving his son what he wanted. The other aspect is that the father makes a promise. He promises to give, he promises to hear, he promises to answer us. You know, of this, John Calvin in his commentary wrote Nothing is better adapted to excite us to prayer than a full conviction that we shall be heard. Those who doubt, can only pray in an indifferent manner. And prayer unaccompanied by faith is an idle and unmeaning ceremony. Accordingly, Christ, in order to excite us powerfully to this part of our duty, not only enjoins what we ought to do, but promises that our Father and our prayers will not be fruitless. Now, some of you may be thinking right now, you may be thinking, okay, okay, I've heard this before, you know, it's not new, I've got this, but, you have a question. What happens when God doesn't seem to answer? What about all that asking and seeking and knocking and yet you still don't receive? Sometimes we can spend many years pleading with our Father only to wonder why there is no answer. Well, I'd love to stand here and to present you a nice, neat, packaged answer. But all I can do is what we all must we go to scripture. We continue to trust in our Father's love and his wisdom to know when to answer. And as we wait, to persist in seeking him and seeking him, not merely seeking the answer to a request. James 4, 2 and 3 tells us, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Now as I was reading about this, I came across something that A.W. Tozer had said and I wanted to repeat what he'd said. He says, whoever seeks God as a means toward desire ends will not find God. The mighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, will not be one of many treasures, not even the chief of all treasures. He will be all in all or he will be nothing. God will not be used. His mercy and grace are infinite, and his patient understanding is beyond measure, but he will not aid man in their selfish striving after personal gain. He will not help men to attain ends which, when attained, usurp the place that he holds. A child's posture in prayer, in turn, for us, is to focus on our Father, on his will, on his kingdom. as Matthew Matthew mentioned in Matthew 6. When our Father is our chief desire, then he shapes our requests to make them answerable. And we can be assured that we have what we ask. Now, as Jesus said before his his, uh, audience, his disciples, the crowds, he turned away from the focus of a child to focus on the one who is supposed to answer a child. And so he mentioned some examples. Earthly fathers. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? These are rhetorical questions. Everyone knows the answer. If his son asks for bread, what kind of a father would give him a stone? Here a child is saying, hey, dad, can I have something to eat? Yeah, yeah, here's a rock. That would be Unheard of it would be unimaginable for a father to treat his child in that way in the same way shall ask for fish he's not going to give him a snake or a serpent but give him fish and since bread and fish were the main foods in this region, it is perfectly normal that a son would expect to receive and a father would freely give what the child asks for food. and if this is obvious, how much more would we expect God? to respond to the request of his sons and daughters. This is a bit shocking here. Now, for us, it becomes common. to repetition. But at this time, to speak of God in such a personal way and to call him Father was a little different. But to think that he actually cares about you, cares about your, what you need, that's a bit shocking. Some would say that that's, you're going too far. God is something other. He's not like you. You can't speak to him like this. And yet Jesus is telling us that's exactly what we can do. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know, even though we're all sinners by nature and thus evil, we know how to give good gifts to our children. This is astonishing. Jesus is looking at the people around him and he says, you're evil. Sin is in your very DNA. And you are consumed with self-centeredness. And yet, even in this state, parents love their children. They will sacrifice themselves for their sons and daughters. And give them not only good gifts, but with great joy and pleasure at giving those things. Because it's the relationship between a father and a son or a daughter that transcends oh so momentarily the evil that is within. And it's overcome by love so the a child can ask and a father can give. It cuts across all cultures, all degrees of goodness and badness because even the worst sons can receive some good from even the worst fathers. And it's now where Jesus kind of puts in the, the punch point where he says how much more will your Heavenly Father give good things to those who ask Him? He compares the Father to earthly fathers. In contrast, our Heavenly Father is holy, perfect, righteous, loving, merciful, knowing exactly what are the needs of His children, even as He gives good gifts to those who ask. Now, if you read carefully through the entire Sermon on the Mount, from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7, there's a thread that goes through the entire three chapters. And the thread is, Father. Jesus mentions Heavenly Father 14 times in these verses. He mentions once our Father, and the last he mentions it will be covered in the weeks to come. He says, a Father, my Father. This thread of fatherhood permeates the Sermon on the Mount because it brings us before God, our Father, even as Jesus shows us how we become God's children and how we're to live before him in our life receiving his heart in us so we can ask according to all that is in his heart. And so Jesus tells us that the Father gives good gifts to those who ask. This is personal between you and your Father. It's not a corporate thing, only. You can pray to your Father quietly and he hears because he's your Father. If you've given your life to Christ. If you belong to him. If you're a son and a daughter. In Luke 11 the parallel passage to this, Luke even specifies the good gift that God gives. It's the Holy Spirit. The Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. I know from Romans 8, getting ahead of myself, in Romans 8, that Paul says, for us who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's God's gift to us. We know it inside, not just here, but inside we have God's spirit. And he witnesses to us that we belong to him. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order, that we also be glorified with him. So our Heavenly Father knows our needs. And he promises to provide for us. The last expectation I have on the screen there is the Father expects us to imitate him. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is commonly called the golden rule. This verse acts as the climax point of this section. Before we dive into this verse, there's a couple of things I wanted to point out. As you look overall in the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus begins by saying, what does a follower of Christ look like? It's the Beatitudes. Those who follow Beatitudes, you're looking like a follower of Christ. How does a disciple of Christ behave? The law and righteousness. It's a large section. And the final section, starting next week, is final warnings. Be careful. Ignoring and disobeying Christ leads to Disaster. But notice that Jesus finishes this middle section by saying, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Or as the other translation has it, however you want people to treat you, so treat them, for this is the law and the prophets. Two times Jesus uses law and the prophets in this section. To begin it, at the very beginning, where Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law. And at the end here in Mark That's why it's called the climax, the tapping point, capstone of this section. How you want to be treated by others, so treat them. So Jesus concludes by saying, therefore, in this passage. And he draws together, this like a person draws a a string on a bag just to close it. He's drawing this section to a close with this phrase. And it's been rephrased in our, our society by... Saying, pay it forward. Be nice to people if you want them to be nice to you. What goes around comes around, or you get what you deserve. But fulfilling the law of the prophets, when I, when I thought about this, I was wondering how does treating others as you, as you, you know, want them to treat you, how is that the law of the prophets? How does it sum up all the Torah, all the prophets, all the writings, the whole Old Testament? with this simple phrase. How can it possibly do that? How does it connect with the law and the prophets? Well, in Romans 13, 8 and 9, Paul says this. See if this sounds familiar. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It sounds like the someone on the Mount. The objective is not a, a quid pro quo, that is something for something. As in, I'll bless you, okay, I'll bless you if you bless me. That's not how it works. We imitate our Father by being like him as we reach out in love to others despite the consequences. See, imitation means that we watch. You watch your your parents. You you copy them as best you can. So God wants us to watch him. We read his word. We live with him. We begin to imitate how he behaves. And it's only possible with Christ. Now, Lee Strobel in his book, God's Unrighteous Claims, offers this caution to us. He says, in fact, let me issue you a warning. You're inevitably headed for a bitter disappointment if you try to live out the Golden Rule under your own power, without allowing God to expand your heart and work through your life. If the Golden Rule appeals to your altruistic side, and you're thinking about pursuing it out of your own secular zeal, forget it. When people don't reciprocate, when they fail to express gratitude, when they take advantage of your generosity, when nobody seems to care that doing something kind for others is eating up your time, your resources, and your energy, you're going to start getting cynical and wondering, why are you bothering? But the Apostle John wrote this about Christians. We love because God first loved us. He did something for us, and then he did something through us. It's only in Christ Christ that we can live out the law of the prophets by treating others as we wish them to treat us and thereby love others as our Father loves us. So, let's wrap this up. Living as a child of your Heavenly Father. In our passage, we've seen that our Father has two wonderful expectations of us. First, he invites you, he invites me, he welcomes us to seek him and his will. And that as we pursue him, he will answer us with good gifts. Second, our Heavenly Father calls us to imitate him as we live in obedience by loving others as he loves us. And this can only be done through Christ. There's simply no other way to be God's sons and daughters outside of Jesus. Now, I'm going to leave you with these words from D.A. Carson. I find that he sums up this whole passage quite well. He says, the kingdom of heaven requires poverty of spirit, purity of heart, truth, compassion, a non-metallatory spirit, a life of integrity, and we lack all of these. Then let us ask for them. Are you as holy, as meek, as truthful, as loving, as obedient as God would like you to be? Then ask him for the grace that these virtues may multiply in your life. Such asking, when sincere and humble, is already a step of repentance and faith. For it's an acknowledgement that the virtues and kingdom requires you don't possess, and that these can only be given by the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you through Christ drawing us to you and making us your children. And thank you for these promises that you've given us, Lord, to uh, have a responsibility to seek you, to live with you, to worship you, and to imitate our lives after you as you reflected in Christ by loving others as ourselves. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we conclude this service and that you would continue to guide us, Lord. Amen. Amen. Before the benediction, I'll leave you with these words by East Stanley Jones. If I throw out a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but aligning my will to the will of God. As we go forth, let us seek, ask, and knock for God's will with the assurance that he will grant us the power to love others as he loves us. Amen.